Thanks, Isaac. Amazing job out of you guys. Um, unprecedented 24-hour response, almost 1,000 reservations in 24 hours for Christmas Eve, which is pretty wild um, for a church. And uh, so now the goal is to take the remaining seats um, and get them out to our family, our friends, and our neighbors. And so uh, this week on social media, that promo will go up. want to encourage you to share it want to encourage you to forward the email that you got that has the video in it to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors. I say it uh, all the time. There are over 96,000 people that live within one town of our church that don't know Jesus on any kind of personal level. He's just kind of a, a historical figure, no different than George Washington. And our goal here is somewhat singular, that they would come to know that he's real, that he is who he said he is, that he's alive and well, and our lives take on meaning, significant, and purpose as we find him and discover him and live with him. And so I just can't encourage you to do that enough. And just before I get started, one more shout out. Such a special time of the year. So many things going on. Um, I want to thank all of the incredible volunteers at this church. Um, we're having a children's ministry uh, party after second service. Excited to see a bunch of you up there. Came back last night from a uh, men's mentoring retreat where we had about uh, 25 to 30 guys uh, away, and I want to thank the elders and, and who've done such a wonderful job leading men. Um, it, it's, when you sit around and you listen to, to 25 men um, of all different ages get up and talk about their experience with God and their renewal, it's unbelievable. Um, so I'm just so thankful for this place and all the volunteers. With that said, um, let's get into the Christmas story. Every year, I have to, I am charged with, with telling the story again, right? And so every Christmas, I try to do, I try to kind of think about it the way the rabbis um, from Jesus' age did. It's said that they would take the Torah, the books of the law, the books of the prophets, and they would sit around, open fires, and they would discuss them with, in a way, kind of the way a jeweler looks at a diamond. They would look at it one way, they'd examine the stories, and they would see the facets. They would understand that when you looked at them one way, one story, one truth, one teaching would emerge. But if you turned it just ever so slightly, you would find yet another story, a, a deeper truth, a, a more profound and maybe somewhat hidden meaning. One story, it's an old story, it's a familiar story. But every Christmas there are new revolutionary truths for us to discover. So this Christmas we're doing that again. We're going to look at an overwhelmingly detailed and documented historical account regarding the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. For those of us in the room who would proclaim that we're Christians, why do we do that? Well, we do that because we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. We will see in this new examination uh, coming together of one of the Bible's greatest, maybe it's singular, theme. And you're unaware that it culminates on Christmas, at least in this world anyway. This theme runs entirely from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, all the way to Revelation. Now, if you're not there yet, if you're not, if you wouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a dedicated follower of Jesus, maybe you're just exploring his claims this morning. Uh, maybe you're wondering about the historicity of the scriptures or, or you're looking for some sense of spirituality at the holidays. Maybe somebody dragged you this morning, right? Here's what I would say. If you would, if you would stick with us through the next couple of weeks, I think what you will discover is Christianity's answer, and everybody's got an answer, right? But this would be Christianity's answer to one of life's most common and prevalent shared experiences and emotions. 
That experience, that emotion, the one I'm talking about that we're going to base this off of, the, the one we're going to spend our entire Christmas on, is our shared desire, our common desire, perhaps our deepest longing. And that's this desire to find home. Now, it's such a prevalent topic, both in the scriptures and in the culture. It's hard for me to believe as I looked at, as I kind of spun the diamond again this year, I can't believe we haven't spent any time looking at this over the last decade of Christmases. I mean, culturally, we know this is a predominant theme, right? It's everywhere. Half of our collective Christmas songbook, right, has something to do with being home, wanting to get home, traveling home. I'll be home for Christmas, Bing Crosby. There's no place like, be, there's no place like for the holidays, right? I mean, it's everywhere. I'll be home for Christmas. Chestnuts roasting by an open fire. Where? In my fireplace, right? Isn't that what we see when we hear that song? But it's not just the classics. We just listen to Darlene Love, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. The Eagles, Please Come Home for Christmas. I could go on and on. It's not just the music. Most of our favorite television shows and movies over the years, even from when I was a little kid up until now, right? It's always the same theme. Somebody's trying to get home in time for Christmas. It's a wonderful life. Everybody's cheering for Harry Bailey to make it back to Bedford Falls. John Candy and Steve Martin in my personal maybe favorite comedy movie of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to get home for the holidays. And almost every single Hallmark movie, I have two daughters, a wife, and a mother-in-law that live in my house. You know the one I'm talking about where the young divorcee moves into town and meets up with a recently widowed guy at a holiday market? Snow is gently falling in a quaint northeastern town where she's in charge of a PTA Christmas party for her daughter that she's the single parent of? You know that one? <laughs> yeah, that one, right? There's a theme in there of home. You feel it, and everybody knows you feel it. That's why they make these movies. That's why, why, why we're sold on these things. There is a universal longing for home. It's not unique to the holidays, mind you, right? We talked about this a couple of years ago during our summer song series. You would be, you'd be, just go Google songs on home. Really, other than love, I think the concept of being home in, in, in song is the second greatest concept. Huge cultural theme in the movies. One of the biggest movies of all time, Wizard of Oz, right? What did Dorothy, what's the, the, what did Dorothy discover at the end? There's no place like home. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You're gonna, as we go through this over the coming weeks, you'll see it everywhere. And so what's up with this? Like, it's a profoundly deep desire. We all share it. Well, to find out this week, I decided I was going to do a little bit of investigative reporting. I headed out on the road in search of home. And so the, the first place I went was, if you said to me, John, where's home? I went to where I grew up. So this is a picture of my house that I grew up in. Five Francis Terrace, only about 20, 25 minutes from here. From here. You see this bottom room right down there? That was my room. Everybody else was upstairs. It's a lot of trouble a teenage boy can get in when everybody else is upstairs. That was my room. I was in there this week. I was going to take a picture of it for you. But unfortunately, my, my mom's the only one that lives in the house right now, and she just lives upstairs. So downstairs has become a bit of a storeroom. 
Um, my 70s uh, paneling is still there. I remember helping my dad put that up when I was a little boy. But much to my chagrin, my Farrah Fawcett poster is long gone. <laughs> Nowhere to be seen. And so as I looked around the room, I'm like, well, this is my house, but this doesn't feel like my home. And the, the paneling was there. And it's not just the physical structure, right? Like, you know, my mom was in the house, but, like, my mom couldn't come downstairs because my mom's got COPD, and the only way for my mom to get down the stairs is, is to ride a, a chair that we had installed at our house to come down. And, and so she's there, but she's not the same as I remember either. And, and we have this sense, this longing, and it turns out it wasn't for the place, and it, I'm not even sure it's for the person we have a longing for stuff, right? Like, when I was there, I was trying to look on the wall, and Farrah was long gone. In fact, I remember it now. Farrah's long, long gone herself. And I was looking around for, like, don't we have this desire for, for, for home to last and for people to last, right? And for our stuff, our accomplishments to last, the things we give our lives to? And so I, I was thinking about that. I was looking around the room for some of my old trophies. I was looking for my 1984 most improved trophy. Now, I know what that means is you really sucked last year. I understand that. But still, it was something, and I accomplished it, and I was gone too. So that wasn't it. So I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe if I, I, if I take it out into the neighborhood, right? Maybe it's not the place. Maybe it's something else where I could get the feeling, right? And so I, I thought, well, I'll go to this field that was around the block from where we grew up. That's where everything happened, in the field, you know. Um, when we were kids in the summer, we would play sports all the time in this field. Every day, we'd go over there. If it was the summer, we'd play baseball. If it was the winter, we'd play football. Um, we played what would be a horribly politically incorrect game now. If we didn't have enough kids for football, we'd play a game called Smear the Queer. And the queer was whoever had the ball, right? And you just got crushed by everybody else chasing you around. But somehow we found that fun when we were children. And so I said, I'm going to go to the field, and I'll get the fields over at the field. I drove over to the field. Here's what I found on the field. Some guy planted a house in the middle of my field. That was the field. That's where I realized that it's not good for small skinny guys to tackle big heavy guys. I learned it right there. You can still, if you look, you can see the imprint of my head on there. And so I pulled away from the field, same longing. Where's home? What am I looking for? Why can't I find it? So in my mind, I started going, well, where would be like the ultimate like warm spot? Like where I'd be like, okay, that's it. And so I thought my grandmother's house, right? My grandma's house. My, I mean, my grandma's house, that was like it. You know, for me, I had the greatest grandmother on the face of the earth. And she was just, I mean, she made me feel welcomed and at home every time I went. And I can remember, I can remember where my pop would sit in the living room, right? I know exactly where his chair was. And I was picturing, I'm going to go to the house and I'm going to see if I could kind of look in the windows. And uh, my grandmother was always in the kitchen, always making somebody something. And my, my aunt had cerebral palsy. My grandmother took care of her her whole life, right up until the end. My mom took over. But I pictured my aunt, whenever I'd come over, my aunt would be in the kitchen. She'd be doing a coloring book with my grandmother or something. And I started getting all the feels back, right? And so I said, I can't wait to get there. So I, I drove out to my grandmother's house on Park Place in South Plainfield. Let me show you what they've done to my grandmother's house. 
That's my grandmother's house. They put a strip mall up in my grandmother's house. And I thought to myself, right, like trying to be that private investigator, right, seeking out that most, most elusive holiday discovery, that sense of home. I mean, that was it. And it wasn't there. I even got out and walked around a little bit, but there was nothing there anymore. There's a Springsteen song called um, Wrecking Ball. It has this powerful line in it. As I drove around my grandma's house, I, I heard it resonating in my head. Now, when all the steel in these stories, they've drifted away to rust, and all our youth and beauty, it's been given to the dust, when the game has been decided and we're burning down the clock and all our little victories and glories have been turned into parking lots. I just looked at that and I'm like, my grandma's house is a parking lot. And so I stood there and I looked at it and I couldn't find words to put on the feeling. Like, I know what it feels like, but what is it? What would you say? Like, what was I looking for? I found out this week why, because the English language actually doesn't have the word we're looking for. We have songs, we have movies. It evokes the feeling, but interestingly enough, we don't have a, a, a word. The Germans, though, do. The German language does. It's a word that hasn't been translated into English, actually. So if you want to say it, you have to still say it in German. Zenzucht. Zenzucht. It's this sense of deep, inconsolable longing, of yearning, uh, the feeling of intensely missing something but we don't know what it is. Super interesting, right? One definition I came across this week is that Zenzokt is a disorienting longing. We sing about it all the time. My premise this Christmas is that that, that Zenzokt, that all of us feel to one degree or another, is a longing for home, a disorienting longing to get to where we're supposed to be. And again, it's not just a biblical topic, it's a huge one. I'm going to get to, to that in a second, the biblical concept. But it's also a cultural one. This longing exists across the centuries, across the continents, in every culture. Social scientists have been trying to figure it out. What is it? Why does everybody have a longing for home? In 2008, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey, 2,200 American adults. They asked them to identify, quote, now listen up. This is interesting, right? The place in your heart you consider to be home. 38% of the respondents did not identify the place they were currently living to be home. Isn't that interesting? Almost 40% of the people said, well, where I live isn't home. 26% reported home was where they were born or raised. Only 22% said it was where they live now. 18% identified at home as the place they had lived the longest. 15% felt it was where their family had come from. 4% said home was where they went to high school. Now, a lot of scientists have taken their, social scientists have taken a shot at describing what it is we're looking for. One professor of psychology I read this week said, home is the place where you feel, and I actually asked a friend this week, I, I had breakfast with a friend, and he said, oh, I grew up around the block from here. And I said, really? I said, uh, how would you describe home? And he actually described it the same way this psychologist said. Um, home is where you feel in control and properly oriented, isn't that interesting, in space and time. It's a predictable and secure place. It's not just the scientists. Poet, poet Robert Frost, quote, home is that place when you have to go there, they have to take you in. I thought that was pretty good. 
Someone concluded that home is the primary connection between you and the rest of the world, which is an interesting conclusion, but I'm not really sure what it means. Like, I can't get my arms around it. So we're all longing, right, through, through space and time and history, we're all longing for this thing that we want to get to, we want to be there, but if you've ever tried to get there, you know it's that when you get there, it's not actually there. There is no there there. And why do we want to go so bad, and why at Christmas? Well, it turns out that this ancient shared longing is actually as you view the biblical narrative as a whole, it is, the, it is the, the backstory, the shared story of the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the, the Bible, if you were going to give it one kind of title, is one giant long search for home. The reason that we all feel it, long for it, search for it, pursue it, and we often pursue counterfeits of it, is that we were made for it. The Judeo-Christian perspective on this is that this longing has not always been there, nor will it always be. What both the ancient rabbis believed and Jesus confirmed is that we were created for a place. We were created to be at home, a home that was lost. Genesis, the first book of origins in, in the Bible. Here's how, how it's described. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and, and man became a living being. And we've talked about this, right, this fall in our, our worldview series. God creates us in his image. He breathes the life of God, not into all of creation, but into his special creation, into man, who he creates not on accident, but on purpose, for a purpose, and no sooner did God create us. In fact, I never realized this until I was looking at it this week. It seems that even before God created us, he created for us a home. Next verse. Now the Lord God had, notice past tense, home was not an afterthought. Home was a primary issue. It was pre-made for us. It's a prefab home. In fact, it's actually, it's interesting, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll even find that home is a primary need of humanity. Now, the Lord God planted, uh, had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord, the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye. God just created so you would enjoy, I mean, just wanted you to enjoy looking around at it. This is why sometimes on a beautiful starry night or an incredible sunset, that feeling kicks in where you're like, there's something about this that's right. It's there, but then it fades and goes away. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Everything that we needed to live was there. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On purpose, for a purpose, with a home made to suit us, exactly to meet our needs, physical, mental, emotional. We were not there alone. We were there with God. We were there with, with one another. It was perfect. But most of you know, man in that place chafes against God's rule in the garden, no different than my teenagers chafed against my rule at home. Sin enters the world, our world, ourselves, this deep sense of flaw and brokenness in us and the world that things are no longer the way they were designed. We aren't. The world isn't. 
In fact, there's an interesting line in the narrative. God, even back here, long before Jesus shows up on the scene, revealing himself as this triune God, this three-in-one God, there's a discussion that begins amongst the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what they said to one another. He, speaking of man, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, we have been separated from the source of life. In the home we were created, to, in the home that was created for us, we were created to live in that home because it was made for us. We were created to live eternally there. But something happened. Right? Now we die. And why? Well, for two reasons. First, because sin always brings separation with it. Sin always has separation following right on, it, on, its, on its heels. Separates us from God. Separates us from one another. Lie to a friend, what does it do to your relationship? Cheat on your spouse, what does it do to your marriage? Steal from your boss, what does it do to your job? Gossip about your neighbor, what's it do to the community? Sin always pulls apart, always separates one from another. I have to tell you, though, there's a second reason. I find this so interesting. I don't see a lot of commentary on it, but I think it's fascinating. It reminds me of something else. Well, yeah, yeah, death is the result of sin, separation from God and one another. The scriptures say that death is the wages of sin. I can't also but help to see that God, right, this God of love, purposely does not let us live on forever and ever and ever in a fallen, broken state. Do you know God loves you too much to let you live like that forever? That's why we die. There's a sense of mercy in it. I will not let this happen to them forever. He's not going to let you live that way forever. So the Lord banished him, speaking of Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Adam in exile. And exile becomes, for all of humanity, the story of all time. It becomes all of our stories. We become exiles, strangers in a hostile and foreign land. Exile is disorienting. M many of you remember when you showed up at college? How disorienting those first couple of days were? I don't know anybody. My stuff's not here. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I fit in. Remember how disorienting that was? That's exile. You wind up in a place you weren't created for and meant to be. We were meant for the garden, the place of the presence of God. There we would live forever. But not unlike if you were to get dropped off on Mars today. I was watching Interstellar with the kids last night. Was that the name of the movie? I mean, that's a freaky movie. If you haven't seen that, it's worth watching. But that concept of we were created for life in the garden. Outside of the garden, things don't work that way. You weren't meant to live on Mars, right? If you, get, if you got off of your spaceship on Mars, you would take a deep breath of air, and what would you quickly discover? This is not my home. I'm going to die here. There's no water for me here. There's no food for me here. There's no other people for me here. None of my needs for life are met in this place because I wasn't meant for this place. You would die not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. It's not your home. You would die there. But here's the interesting thing. If you got back in your spaceship and came back to Earth, you know what happens to you here? You die too, just more slowly. You're just a little more used to it. So the story of Adam and Eve's exile, it sets up the story of the entire scripture. It sets up your story. 
It begins with the story of a nation, uh, of Israel's exile. Some of you know this story, right? Israel's given this gift of a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they can stay in that place as long as they upheld one condition, uphold the terms of the covenant that they had made with God. And they didn't. And do you know what happened when they didn't uphold that covenant, when they sinned against God? Israel was taken into captivity and exile in Egypt. Some of you know the story. God raises up Moses to bring them out of exile back to this homeland. But again, what happens? Sin, rebellion, missing the mark laid out by God. And again, what happens? Exile comes. They are again taken out of the land, away from their home. They wind up in Babylon. And this Babylonian exile, so much of the Old Testament, the prophets are, are talking about this exile, right? It has a dual meaning in the biblical narrative. The actual historical exile of the people there, right? But also the shared feeling of exile that everyone feels and knows, the zenzukt. So, so in the Bible, this, 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 this exile for Israel is also a reflection of the exile of all humanity. For every human, exile becomes our condition. And we repeat, just like it's been repeated through the scriptures, we in our lives repeat this pattern of corruption and sin, of missing the mark laid out by God. And where do we wind up? We wind up in places of exile, in the Babylons of our own creation, these places where we can't escape, where we become exiles of our own making. I know some of you feel that this morning. How did I even get here? I don't want to be here. It's not an unfamiliar feeling. You shouldn't even try to, to quench it. The people closest to God knew it and felt it just like you do. God calls Abraham to the promised land. And he gets to the promised land. And you know what he says when he gets to the promised land? I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Centur even in the promised land, because that wasn't it. Centuries later, God leaves Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, out of slavery into the promised land again. But with a reminder, the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. A few centuries later, one of the nation's great kings would cry out, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. I'm like a guest, like all of my fathers before me. Sojourner. You never hear that term anymore. The Bible uses it all the time because that's the story of the scriptures. Sojourners. A sojourner is simply somebody who's living away from their home. That sense you and I have, it exists because you know why? Because you and I are sojourners. We are people living away from home. And there is this deeply established theme in the scriptures. But there's a second theme too, just if not more prevalent. Which is that one day, every sojourner longing for home will be invited back. Brought back home. And of course, if you know the story of the Old Testament, Israel was brought back into the promised land from Babylon, but it's much more profound than that and glorious. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel foresaw. He said, on that day, I'll cleanse from you all of your sins. I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, the land that was laid waste has become again like the Garden of Eden. 
the strip mall in South Plainfield will become again like Graham's house. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. But you have to see, because this is the Christmas story, it's not just about Israel returning to the promised land from Babylon. This carries forward. In fact, the promises of, of this, re, this homecoming are so much greater. Listen, listen to what Israel's great prophet Isaiah said about homecoming. He said, in that day, there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, I Israel's two great enemies. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyrians, or to Assyria, the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on earth. Egypt and Assyria? The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. The promise of a homecoming, of a gathering, Isaiah foretells is not simply for Israel, but for Egypt and Assyria, the enemies of Israel. There is a homecoming, a day is coming when all will be invited back. All will be welcomed back home. Where everything you're looking for and searching for in all the wrong places can be found. The old prophet Testament prophet Zephaniah saw it. He said, he said, he heard God saying, at that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. And I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Uh, some of you know I'm a, uh, I'm a Springsteen guy, but I'm also a Michael Card fan. Michael Card is a Christian singer from the uh, from probably most prevalent in the 80s and 90s, and he would take scripture and he would just put it to music, and I, I found myself I could be driving and weeping over Michael Card songs, and uh, anytime I've lost somebody close to me, I will flip on Michael Card's um, "I Will Bring You Home." If you've lost somebody close to you, I would encourage you to go home today and flip this on. He puts Zephaniah to music. Here's the lyrics. He says, "Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home." Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home. I will be your home. In this fearful, fallen place, I will be your home. When time reaches fullness, when I move my hand, I will bring you home. Home to your own place in a beautiful land. I will bring you home. But the promise, here's the key to Christmas, the promise is not that, that it's just for later to be experienced on the other side. The truth is that home can be found now. It can be your current resting place. It is where peace is found. It can be a current experience. Here's what the psalmist wrote. Lord, through all the generations, you've been our home. The story of Christmas is it turns out Right? The revelatory truth of Christmas. It turns out that home is not a place. Home is a person. What you're looking for is not a place. What you're looking for is a person. Home is not where the heart is. Home is who is in your heart. But how do you live then practically? If we're all sojourners, how do we live lives of sojourners? A pretty famous chapter in the book of Hebrews. Many of you know it. It's, it's oftentimes referred to as the hall of faith, right? Hebrews chapter 11. Because it lists all of the Old Testament heroes who followed God. 
dozens of them, from Abel and Abraham to David and the prophets, and it commends them, of course, on their faith. But then the writer writes something super interesting that all of them shared, one singular commonality amongst all of them. Here's what he said. All of these people, all of these saints, all of them were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They admitted, you know what they admitted? I'm a sojourner. I, have, I, I, I live in a tent. I move from place to place. This is not my place. Who did they admit it to? My guess is they started with themselves. They had to remind themselves regularly, almost daily, don't make a home here. I know it's tempting. I know you've got this deep desire to make this your home. Don't do it. It will not quench your desire. They're going to build a strip mall there one day, you know. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're not going to get what you're looking for. Actually, follow along what the writer says. It's so profound. He says that people who say such things, who say what things? Who say to themselves and others, this is not my home. This is not my home. They show what they're looking for, that they're looking for a country of their own. They're looking for something else. This is not it. And then check it out. Check this line out. This is brilliant. I mean, it's in the Bible. Of course, it's brilliant. But if they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had the opportunity to return. In other words, if they desired to go back, which is often what the people of God want to do, right? God, de God desires you to live as a sojourner in this world. But if you know the story of the Israelites, right, God brings them out of Egypt, out of their slavery and their abuse and their misery and their beatings and their starvation, and no sooner do they get out of Egypt than they want to go back. They forgot to look for a country of their own. They were willing to settle for someone else's. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They didn't look for a country of their own. See, don't you understand, church? If you're not looking for that better country... The lure of the old country will always hearken you back. But when you get there, you won't find what you're looking for. To Israel, right? It would have been go back to the days of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. But what is calling you back? I came across an interesting truth this week. Again, not a Christian source, a secular writer in the Atlantic. Here's their findings. Quote, this is a great a quote. If you're going to write anything down, write this one down. When you visit a place you used to live, these cues can cause you to revert back to the person you were when you lived there. That's not from the Bible. <laughs> That's just some guy that realized it. The warnings are scriptural and cultural, and they all say the same thing. Be very careful. Home is not what you think it is. The feeling that you're looking for, right? It can't be found where you're looking but you know what can be found there? The old you, the old man, the old person, the old troubles, the old pains, the old addictions, the old crowd, the old influences, the old struggles, the old feelings. I was talking to a friend just this morning before we came in here about the men's retreat yesterday, and, uh, and through tears he said to me, you know, I, I know that God has forgiven me of these things I've done in my past, I just haven't forgiven myself. He's not looking forward to the new country. 
He's letting somebody tell him to go home. Don't go home. The key to living as a sojourner in this world is to understand that this world is not it. It is not your home. Don't try to make it your home. And don't go looking for your home here. It's not here. You know what you might find? A parking lot. Or worse, the old flame, the old ways, the old hurts and habits and hang-ups. The key to living as a sojourner is to look forward to a new country and a new king. Instead, the writer says, instead, they, all of these heroes of the faith, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Guys, the whole story of the biblical narrative is the story of a people in exile, a people with a disorienting need, one that they can't find words for, trying to find their way back home. And if you read the scriptures, what you'll see time and time again is they settle for a counterfeit. They try to go back to their old countries looking for it, or they settle for cheap substitutes, or they do something, they acquire some kind of vice or idol. It could be success or power, sex, money, beauty, fame. You name it, you name it they're trying to, to create their own country. You know what they're trying to do so often? This is why addictions get us so, so powerfully. They dull that that sense, if I just keep drinking, I won't feel it anymore. If I just keep sleeping around with different men, I won't feel it anymore. If I just keep buying more things in bigger homes, I, I just won't feel it anymore. No one talked about this concept of Zenzuk more than C.S. Lewis. Like the biblical narrative itself, this disorienting desire for home, it runs beneath almost everything he wrote. While the German word doesn't translate, Lewis and his brilliance does such a great job of capturing the truth and the feeling of this shared longing in this book he wrote. The book was called Weight of Glory. I, I'm just going to read you a couple paragraphs. and I just want you to settle back and see if this resonates with your heart. I think he, for me, he just nailed what's true, what I'm looking for. He picks up on, on these heroes of the faith that were looking for this distant country, right? And he begins to try to describe what it is they were looking for, what you and I are looking for. Here's what he said. He goes, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, he goes, honestly, I, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open this inconsolable secret in each one of you that the secret which hurts so much that you would rather take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in every intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow kind of awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We can't tell it because it's a desire for something that's never actually appeared in our experience. And we can't hide it either because our experience is constantly suggesting it exists. We betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. It was beautiful. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust, if we trust to them. It, 
It wasn't actually in them. It only just came through them. And what came through them was that longing. He says these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. They break the hearts of their worshipers. For they're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the, the echo of a tune we haven't heard. They're, they're news from a country we have never yet visited. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. It is no, no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. This feeling, these inzucht that all of us have, it, it caused him to famously lead to the conclusion that many of you have heard in, in his preeminent work, Mere Christianity. He says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. One where you don't die. And all the people that you love don't go away. And all of the things that you spent all of your time building don't rust and wind up in the trash. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, if that does not prove that the, if that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Friends, don't you see, this is the story of Christmas. The exile is over. You're alone no longer. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Don't you see what's happening in the story? The king has left his own country and has entered ours. Pick up your tent, sojourner, and don't look back. Whatever you do, don't go back. S stop trying to make this place work for you. You can't. It won't. Don't settle for the counterfeits, the cheap substitutes. Pick up your tent. The exile's over. There is only one cure to the longing you feel, and it can't be found here. It can be found here, though. It can be found in you as Christ lives in you and dwells in you and makes his home in you. If you believe, don't you see the story? The story of Christmas is a story of a king from a distant country that left his home to bring you home. A king that took off his crown to give you yours. The story of Christmas is that when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, what he is saying is that I'm the way home. Now, pick up your tent and come and follow. Let's stand and close the song.